0: Thank you, Leslie and Paul. Welcome to the rest of you. You Let's get right to it. Let's go to our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts once again. We continue on in our journey through what I've, I guess, become accustomed to calling and this study through is the bridge book, uh, tying the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament together. Uh, I personally can't imagine how difficult it would be to leave Acts out. (laughs) How would you get to Romans or to any of the other epistles? Uh, Acts chapter 22 will begin today in verse 30, the last verse of chapter 22. We know that Paul has been uh, arrested, and from this point on to the rest of the book of Acts, actually the rest of his life, he literally will be imprisoned. His ministry doesn't necessarily change Except he's not as free to go. Now he's taking literally the course of where imprisonment, in fact, takes him. Beginning now, Acts chapter 22, verse 30. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherewith he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear. Brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul earnestly, beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. The high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And then that stood by, said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wish not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part was Sadducees, I'm sorry, that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. When he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. There arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. When there arose a great dissension, and the chief captain, fearing, lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them, and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. May God have a special blessing in reading of his word, and let's just pause for prayer, prayer to our study. Father God, we're thankful to you today, rejoicing that you've given Jesus Christ to be our Savior, to pay the price that was necessary, to take my sins, to take the world's sins, if you will, that anyone that would trust in Christ, fully giving themselves to him, we become a new creature, as it says in Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. New things from within. The Holy Spirit resides and dwells. And that, Father, you change us moment by moment, day by day, bringing us to a, to a conclusion to come to you eternally, to be in your presence. What a gift. What a grace. Father, today as we're in the book of Acts again, we would ask that you take us to the target right where you want us, zero in on our lives, right to the very pinpoint spot in our minds and our hearts that you would change us, that you would make us look more like Jesus Christ. That's your goal, Father, is that we would become in the image of Jesus. Now, Father, these words that are before us, may they be powerful because the word through the Spirit is just that. Now, Father, we... Trust that the Holy Spirit alone will exclusively be our teacher. We rest in that, resting in the word and thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we review, uh, we're kind of in the midst of a, shall we say, a whole trial. This is actually the second defense. Um, maybe, Laramie, let's put our, t- our our temple back up there, and we'll see literally where they're at. Paul has been on a journey, the third missionary journey. And uh, he has returned. He has been very focused, very, very focused in the sense of combining uh, a bunch, I would say, a a bunch of offerings, shall we say, at the hands of the Gentile churches that he was instrumental in, in beginning and founding. And he's bringing those back. He has brought them back. I'm sorry, it's past tense at this point. He's brought also Gentiles that were representatives of each one of these offerings as they came to the Church of Jerusalem to give to... A church that was probably suffering, literally. These individuals within this would have been having difficulty to find a job. Because you're in Jerusalem, you're in a place that Judaism is number one. To be a Christian, that is to say that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. So let's even say it that way. It's okay to say Jesus, but to say Jesus Christ, that's making Jesus the Messiah. When you say that in downtown Jerusalem, you aren't going to be very well accepted. You may be able to, you talk about racism at its highest and most intricate level. Uh, the difference between Judaism and Christianity was just that. A split right down the middle. You probably weren't even served food. You were not given an opportunity of a job. And maybe not even having the ability to own a home. Now think of that for a moment. Well, these gifts that would have come from Gentile uh, churches would have done a couple of things. First of all, it meant a need financially, but secondarily and more importantly was the fact of this camaraderie or the unity that would have been across the entire church. The Holy Spirit was not a different one for each group within the church, but literally one spirit, one body, one Christ. That was the whole message that Paul was bringing. That's been his focus. As he came into town, into Jerusalem, um, he was met, uh, they met, and he shared those gifts. He was visiting with the church, the Christian church, James being the spokesman of that um, with the elders. And they were, he was asked to maybe push out a little bit further than normal because of this conflict. And so there was four Christians that were involved in a vow, finish, finishing a vow, and Paul was asked to pay for those vows, And also, he himself now, having been in Gentile territory, would have been classified as unclean. So, he was actually doing a cleansing vow as well to be able to go within the temple. And you guys have been with us. He entered the temple. And there was a group during this Feast of Pentecost. This was a gathering. This was a big-time deal, uh, which would have celebrated, in their minds, not the beginning of the church, which we do. We celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, the beginning of the church. They would have saw it as a... Getting of the law, the period of time, 50 days, what Pentecost means is 50 days, um, from the time that the Israelites left Egypt until they received the law from God through Moses was 50 days. So this is a celebration of the law. Now, there's a group from Ephesus that have come into town. These are people that would have known Paul on sight. He'd been in Ephesus for three years, longest time that, that Paul was on any one of those stops on his three missionary journeys, Ephesus. And they saw him with Trophimus. Trophimus was a Gentile. And they supposed, that's what the Scripture says, that he had taken him, Trophimus, into the temple. Now, there's something that's really, really, and I'm talking temple, not, not the whole courtyard, but literally stepping into the inside where Jewish men could only be there. That's it. And I'm talking Jewish men. If a, if a Gentile would wander in there, there was actually on all of the posts surrounding any doorway, was to say this. If you enter into this, not being a Jew, you literally have no one to blame but yourself because you will die. And that's pretty straight away. Now, the, the interesting part is, is that Paul, even if he would have taken Trophimus in there, he himself, Paul, would not have been worthy of death. Trophimus would have been. Now, what you need to know is the Sanhedrin or the Jewish, that's the Supreme Court. We're going to be digging into them deeper as we go on in today's session. But the Sanhedrin would have been what we would know in America as the Supreme Court. It was the overall, everything falls here. Now, when Jesus was, and, and there's been, this is actually, the, I think it's the fifth time that literally Jesus, Peter and John, Stephen and Paul, maybe there's one other one, that literally have appeared before this group of men hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these aren't wimps. These are the big deal. I mean, you can imagine 71? That's how many is in the Sanhedrin. Maybe we'll take a few notes as we go on, but there's 70 plus one, the one being the high priest, that, that is literally making up the Sanhedrin. Uh, they would have met in a place called with, I, can't, I don't think it's here. I don't think it's pointed out, but it would have been in the temple area. I play, let's see if it's listed. I do not see it. At any rate, there was the place of Hew and Stone. It was a place that would kind sort of set up an amphitheater. If you will, you would think of these 70 guys that would have been surrounding in a half circle. They were not tiered. They were all basically, you know, that's the, that's the beauty or the strength of a roundtable discussion. Everyone's seeing everyone. Everything's being laid out there. So if you think about it, the, now in this case, if a criminal case came before them, that person would be standing right there in the middle being surrounded and all the way around, and then the high priest would have been taking a place, and then two secretaries, if you will, to take the votes. Because there would have been a vote, and 71 being an odd number, that was the whole purpose. The high priest would have been the one that would have been voting last. He was the one to break a tie, or actually, and potentially having unanimity. He, he's the last guy to give that place. So that's really, now they would have, this is what's important. Uh, they would meet every single day, except for feasts and Sabbaths. They were a busy group. This group met regularly with affairs surrounding, uh, in this case, uh, judgment, but also in the sense of rules, regulations, anything that would be affected with religious life in the nation of Israel. This is the high court. Now, you would have a lower Sanhedrin or a lesser Sanhedrin that would be in different places. There was 23 of those. That would be in a city of any sense of size. But this is the key. This is the ones. the if Supreme Court. And they would have had, it's not not placed here, but anyway, this one place that they would normally meet, not today, I mean, not today, but I mean, in the scripture we read, they're actually meeting at the request of our guy, Claudius Lysias, Claudius, after watching... Paul being literally beaten to death, his, his crew from up in the Antonian Fortress runs down, grabs him, protects him from being killed within the temple that people have come to worship. Now get a little of that for a moment. It would be like coming in here and literally somebody said something and you are just throttling and beating this guy to death. But we're here to worship God. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds a little crazy. Well, it was a little crazy. So they rescue him from there. They take him up to the top. Paul then at the top of the steps has, at this point has said nothing. And he says in Greek to Claudius Lysias, you know what, guy? Could I say something to this group in Greek, which means, whoa, that's cool. I got that. And he said, go ahead. And then he speaks in Aramaic, which now everybody else is rapt attention. That's where it's at. That's really where things started to go really strongly. And then he said the G word, the Gentile word, and the thing exploded. We have a ride of thousands of people in the courtyard that is, they've gone nuts. Claudius Lysius at this point says, hmm, I haven't learned a thing. So now I'm going to do what's the next obvious thing since I'm a Roman, I'm a tough guy, and I'm a thousand men that will do whatever I say. Take him and, and, and uh, what's the right word? Scourge him, that's right. I'm thinking flagellum, but that's the, that's the tool that's used. And he says, stretch him out and make him talk. That's, all right, that's what we do. We just add pressure. And then I, I, I'm wondering, I'm just thinking about Paul. He's so cool, right? At this point, this guy only knows enough to know about Paul that he, he's a Jew, and he's, he's, I don't know what's wrong with him. And as they're stretching him out, getting him ready to literally scourge, he says, uh, guys, is it, is it legal to scourge a Roman citizen? Boom! I mean, whoa, what did you say? And they ran off. The guy's tying him down. <laughs> Claudius, old buddy, old pal, you got a problem. This guy's a Roman citizen. What? And he doesn't even, he runs down, are you a Roman? He said, born a Roman, the best of the best. Oh, my goodness. So that's where we kind of locked down last week, is he doesn't know what to do now. So he's taken him in, and now as we read in verse 30, the next day, he's released him from his chains. He's still incarcerated, but he's been released from his chains. Claudius has asked the Sanhedrin to meet, and I'm, I'm, I feel certain that it was in the bottom or the basement of the, of, of the fortress itself. He says, I want you guys to convene here. Now, that makes sense later on, because there seems to be some sense of not knowing who the high priest is on Paul's account. This would not have been a formal setting. This would have not been that half circle laying around of where Paul would have stood in the middle. This was literally an informal meeting in the bottom of the fortress. Claudius is very much in charge of this whole situation. And he still wants to know what did Paul do to get this kind of rage, this kind of riotous activity. What is it? I mean, Because now he's got a bigger problem than he had before. Let me tell you why. Somewhere along the line, since Paul is a Roman citizen, he as Claudius Lysias has to come up with a reason to send him anywhere. And there has to be a case. There has to be something to indict him. There is something that has to be there, and he's thinking. You know, can you? How would you like to be Claudius for a moment? You got the whole city up in a uproar, and you have no idea why. What? I don't get it. So now he's going to take the Supreme Court. He's asking him to come. You tell me what this guy's done. Okay, here we are. That took too long to review, didn't it? But here we are. Verse 30, we'll come back. On the morrow, that's tomorrow morning, after he had spoken with the people on the steps, he had, because he, that's Claudius, would have known the certainty wherewith he was accused of, he wants to know what's going on, he loosed him from his bands, in other words, the two chains that they bound him with, and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear. That's the Sanhedrin. Brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, now, slip into Paul's shoes for a moment. How's it been going in the last couple of days? Not well, not well at all. In fact, I'm not sure if it wouldn't be something, well, maybe even close with this. There's an old song that I can remember. I love, it's it's, it's an old hymn, and it's, Does Jesus Care? It's written by a man, I can't think of his name, Frank something or other, 1901, Does Jesus Care? We'll actually read those lyrics to finish. I'm wondering, as you're sitting there in the evening, and I've texted to people this week, because our world has all kinds of ups and downs, and I mean, troubles, right? Does Jesus care? Uh, In Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, let's go to the other side. He had preached for that evening, and they're going to the other side. And he is exhausted. You can tell just exhausted because he fell asleep in the boat. And this storm comes up, and it literally says it's blowing so hard that the waves are actually filled the boat with water, and Jesus is still sleeping. That's exhaustion. And the disciples say something. Don't you care that we're going to (laughs) die? How many times have we reached out in that pinnacle the moment of which we really can't go any further, does Jesus really care? Here's the disciples and he's in the boat. Don't you care? And then Jesus gets up and rebukes the storm and it's still, not just the wind, the entire sea. And if you've been on the, you know, you know if you just even skip a rock across the way, how the ripples, I'm convinced from the term, the term of that, the, it was like glass and it's calm as can be. And then they said, who is this guy? I've turned around in my life after saying, where is Jesus? And I've said, not only is he there, he's amazingly sovereign, powerful, and awesome, and no one anywhere can rival him. That's where Job came to in the last, book, last of that book. As we think about that, Paul must have had some of that in. Now, the other thing that's, that's occurring to me, Paul has arisen, or, or arrived in Jerusalem. He's handed off gifts. There should be unity galore. The church should be on fire Did you see anybody here with Paul right now? I I can't find it. From here on, actually, literally, now you find it in other epistles, he'll mention individuals, names of people that stood by him, but it's a small group. You ever been alone when you've been right? That's a tough place. That's a really tough place. How is he going to address this group? Now, he's standing before the Supreme Court. He's in the middle. He's got the Romans that are literally trying to find out how to indict him. How do you act? Are you confident? Are you, oh, I don't, you know, I just don't know how I got here. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm a regular guy. I mean, I don't know what's going on, right? Or do you, did you see, watch, let's, let's look at the terminology because I want you to see what Paul, how he did this. The Romans delivered him, set him in front of the, of the Supreme Court. These aren't just little guys. This isn't district court. This isn't some group of, a ter- this is the deal. They have the right literally to condemn him. Now, the way they're going to go about it or want to go about it is illegal. They're still All of this accusations have come to try to kill. Now, that's the one thing I didn't mention. You remember, Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin. Why? Because the Romans still had the capital punishment jurisdiction. Them and them alone had the right to kill someone. That's why the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, sent Jesus to the Romans to get the final verdict, and that's why they called him an insurrectionist, because any sense of treason, and he would be killed. That's, that was the whole purpose, but this is the key. The Sanhedrin had the ability, if someone walked into that temple, a Gentile, they could kill him. Now, if you've been watching the lack of justice in our world, in many, 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 many ways, not just one, I could, I could set the rest, of, well, I'm not going to, I'm not gonna get started down that. The point is, This is a railroad job as you've never seen. They were going to kill Paul because someone that should have been killed if he entered, which he didn't, would be there. Totally illegitimate. The whole thing shouldn't have even been there. Get it? How's Paul going to handle this? Let's look at the words. Verse 1, chapter 23. Paul earnestly beholding. Whoa. Earnestly beholding. That would be like dialed in and staring them down. You got it? Paul, I didn't like to do that, but I mean, he is glued and locked in, and he is not on trial. They are. Now, that's confidence. He's not going to be intimidated in any way, shape, or form. Let's continue, because you'll see it, even how he approaches this. These guys, these 71 are sitting in front of him, or I'm assuming it's 71. It would be most of them if not. Now, before we give you a f- no, that's okay. Let's, let's keep, keep moving. He's, he is staring him down. The council said, he said, men and brethren, stop. Now, we just gloss over that. I have numerous times. That's not the way you approach them. That's not the way you address them. That's not normal. He said, men and brethren. He's making them, basically making them his peers. You don't do that. Let's go back to Acts chapter 4 and let's see how Peter and John address them. Because that was another opportunity for the Sanhedrin to hear about Jesus Christ. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. And I hope I wrote it down. Otherwise, I'm going to have to dig around here a little bit. Acts chapter 4. Um, let's see. Where did I have that? Oh, there. Way, I was way for it. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Okay. And, and let's stop. Let's get ourselves back a little bit. Let's, let's set ourselves up. Uh, Let's just start in verse 1. Best place to start. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they laid hands on them, put them in the hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes, this is the Sanhedrin again, and Annas the high priest. Now, in this case, don't confuse this guy. This is Annas, the high priest, in Acts chapter 4. The high priest in chapter 22 and 23 is Ananias, not Ananias and Sapphira, not Annas, but Ananias. Now he was, we'll get into him, he's one of the most corrupt high priests of all time. It says in Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Here they are. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, who's they? Peter and John. By what power, by what name have you done this? Now this is, now we're, in, now we're in the place where they literally normally gather. This is a formal setting. Peter and John would be standing in front of the same group of people, but not as this, Paul has an informal dwelling setting, they have a formal one. He said, what are you preaching in? Watch, verse eight. Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, watch, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, compare that to, Paul said, men and brethren, did you see that? That's a way different approach. Peter is giving them the sense of they're in authority. They've got the, command, the, the op- option to command. And Paul comes in, le- stares them down and says, men, brethren. Whoa, we're on the same level. Now, for a moment, as you think about that, Paul knows probably a number of these people in the group he's a pharisee he was trained under gamaliel gamaliel would probably more than likely have been a very high up within the sanhedrin itself he might have even seen his past master right there he would have saw co-students i mean if you got taught by gamaliel you want to get in the sanhedrin you want to get in the supreme court you got to know people you know who you want to know gamaliel i'm not even so sure that paul maybe hadn't even served in a capacity on the sanhedrin you see this all of a sudden he's not on trial they are. But watch what he says next. He opens it up. (laughs) Uh, By the way, you aren't in authority, guys. You're just, I'm just like you. Oh, i got to go back to uh, Acts chapter 20. I'll be right there. There we are. He says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That's his opening line, his opening remark. Now, what bothers you I think, as you keep reading, the next sentence says that the high priest says to someone close to to Paul, smite him on the mouth. Now, uh, most would say it's a slap. No. No, the word literally means full fist or a club to the mouth. I mean, whammo! Now, I'm just thinking, now, wait a minute. What did he say that made Mr. Ananias, like, freak out. Well, one was the fact he did not give him what he would call the noted authority. We're just brothers, guys. But I want to tell you something. My conscience has been clear until this very day. Now, that, when you think about that, you say, let's talk about conscience for a moment. Let's just tear that word apart. Now, wasn't Paul... Saul for a while? That's like two different guys. That's like a schizo, right? I mean, he's killing Christians when he's Saul, and now he's being tried for being a Christian. And he says, I've always lived by my conscience before God. Not, not just, not, not my conscience. Have you ever had this upper? You say, someone's done you wrong. Does that guy or that woman have no conscience? You've said that, haven't you? You're smiling. What is a conscience? For me, the best definition that I've that I found was from a man named Morn Wiersbe, a great Bible teacher of yesteryear. He's passed away, but he was with uh, Moody Bible Church. He, he, just somebody I've got, a, I've got commentaries from him, and this is the best that I know. It works for me. A conscience does not set the standard. The conscience only applies the standard. Now, let's talk about that. Let's see, you're still, what? What did that mean? A conscience is only as good as what it's been fed. A conscience will make a moral judgment on what the individual has filled him or herself with. You see, if you take a lifetime criminal, his or her conscience may be declaring him guilty, him or her, if he would give up his fellow partners, because that would be violating his conscience. Just like on the opposite side is for someone whose conscience would declare them guilty if they lied about their friend. That's almost weird, isn't it? A conscience must have truth to effectively do what God wants it to do. Now, when Paul did not, in fact, let's let's go to a scripture that would that would give that to us. Let's go to um, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. My point in this is to say, a conscience does not justify you. Let's go to first. No, that's not it. Ah, uh, maybe it's Second Corinthians. Just hold on. Just relax for just a second while Larry gets his act together. That's not it either. All right, got it wrong. Where's that at? No, no, it's Romans chapter nine. Don't go to Second. Don't go to Corinthians. Go to Romans chapter nine. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Romans chapter nine. Let's take a look at verse one. This is what he's saying now as he's written Romans, which is about the same time. He says in verse 1, chapter 9. Now, there's context, but it doesn't matter because we're looking at a statement. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. I'm going to say something now. I want you to understand this. My conscience also bearing me witness. What? In the Holy Ghost. Those last four words are absolutely critical because a Christian that trusts Christ as Savior, all of a sudden your conscience is... Cleared, cleaned. Let's go, to, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. Watch this. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, that's how you're saved, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, he was sinless, perfect, pure sacrifice, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How has your conscience changed? How is it purged? through Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at some passages that would give us different, different adjectives in consciences. Consciences. There we go. One of the things that I think is important, there's people that say, I live by my conscience. Have you heard that? I remember the old timers, right? And by the way, um, parents that have instilled good behavior, have instilled good principles... In their children at a young age, that seems to stick. Even even if they kind of walk away from that, there's something there that holds them. Is that good enough? Are you justified by your conscience? And I'm talking about living a clean, pure life, and your conscience sort of is where you walk. That's that's kind of why you No, it's not good enough. Let's go to First Corinthians chapter four, verse four. First Corinthians four four. First Corinthians four four. You may be very sincere, uh, but it's still, that's not how you're justified. 1 Corinthians 4, 4. For I know nothing by myself. This is Paul speaking. I don't know anything by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified. In other words, I'm not justified, but but he that judges me is the Lord. The only way to be justified is by Jesus Christ. He's the one that can declare you not guilty. The conscience is very fleeting. That's another word. That's the first time I've said that, actually. But if you take the conscience, and it makes it, the conscience makes a moral judgment on what is within that individual. If it's all garbage, it's all evil, pretty soon guess what? There's leaders right now leading our country. Their conscience actually guides them to do the wrong thing. You see, a conscience is only as good as the truth that's been fed it. Now, let's take a look and see how the scriptures would actually give us the sense of, conscience. Um, let's go to, let's say I have you in 1 Corinthians. Let's go and see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 what is described as a weak conscience. We'll, we'll move quickly so you can come back and kind of infer, uh, refer to these later. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, verses 7 says, this is speaking about eating food consecrated to an idol. It says, how be it, verse 7, there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay? Now, that's someone that is is just making, they're a new Christian, and they, they're they trying to sever the sense of where they were. Now, Gentiles particularly, they would have worshipped idols. In fact, we're doing a study through 1 Thessalonians. Chap, and chapter 1, in verse 9, it says that you change serving idols to the living God, okay? And to know that they would go into a house. This was a big deal. It's not to us, but it was to them. If you were a new Christian and you go into a house and there was a mature Christian, that it went down to the market and got a good deal on some, uh, I'll just say a T-bone steak, okay? And there might have been a sign over it, this is, uh, I'm just making this up. I don't know if this is the way of it or not, mm-hmm. but, but the, it, the principle's there. This meat is on sale because it was extra, because it was offered to idols such and such. Well, if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean anything to you. You're serving in Jesus Christ. and It doesn't matter. Meat is meat. So you buy it. And in your conversation with the guy that just got saved that was worshiping that idol, and he sits down, and you say nonchalantly, Yeah, I got a good deal down the market. I mean, (laughs) is that not a good piece of meat, buddy? I mean, it's awesome. That's a really good T-bone, you know. On well, why was it on sale? Well, you know, those guys, those clowns, kind of worship that. Stuff. I mean, it would deeply offend that person. Now, his conscience is still it's weak, and if he is hit with that, it literally goes into what is called a defiled conscience. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's go to verse ten, same chapter. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And that's a dangerous place to do to violate a weak conscience. Let's keep moving. Here's one in Titus chapter 1. This is a defiled conscience. Titus chapter 1. Find Hebrews and then just turn to your left a little bit. You'll find a little thing of Philemon and then Titus is right there. Titus one fifteen, verse 15. Unto the pure... All things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. You see, if you're without Jesus Christ, literally, your conscience is defiled. You cannot see things clearly. Now, this is where I want you to see. This, see, Paul is the perfect example to have a study or a or, or talk about conscience. He has just gotten before the Sanhedrin. He's staring them down. He sees them as peers, and he says, my conscience has been clear all of my life right up to this day. And you're saying, what? He was killing Christians and now he's being killed because he's a Christian basically. Well, his conscience was exactly, he lived by it, regardless of which side of Jesus Christ he was on. You see the difference? That's why don't ever live by your conscience because your conscience has to be dialed in. A defiled conscience and one that certainly cannot think clearly. Now here's one. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Just turn to the right just a little bit. You find chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Literally an evil conscience. But you know there's one worse than that yet. These, a defiled conscience... I was the one I just, evil conscience? Their legitimacy of making right decisions based upon God's law would be just happenstance once in a great while. They probably, if you even take an atheist, it's amazing. Isn't it amazing the things they don't want to happen to them? They want to be treated fairly. They don't want to be robbed. They don't want to be raped. They don't want to be murdered. Why is that? Isn't it a free-for-all? Isn't there no God? Isn't there anything? There's no, you just do what you want to do? Well, don't do that to me. Isn't it amazing? There's a standard. There's something set up into that. And yet, their conscience has been not only evil, just for themselves, whatever fits me. There's, anyone apart from Jesus Christ is literally me-oriented. That's all they're interested in. I, I, they can say anything they want to say, and that's all you will live for, because that's how we're set up. Eve, she threw the serpent under the bus. That's because that stupid serpent. It wasn't what you said to me, God, that didn't matter. It was that guy, that guy right there. Adam said, you think that's bad? It's the woman. She's the problem, which basically said this, God, you're the problem. See, that's what what sin does. It makes me in the center and everything else does not matter. Isn't it amazing? Okay, now here's the worst. When you continue to press against doing even what you know is right, that's why for a moment just to come back. I'm going to will follow through on that. What would be the worst thing to be is a Christian that has trusted Christ as savior and continues to sin. That is the most miserable person on the planet because his his or her conscience is literally from the Holy Spirit. We read that in Romans chapter 9 verse 1, the Holy Spirit is driving the conscience with the word of God saying that was wrong. That was wrong. Uh, and that, like that tuning fork, you uh, ah, stop it, right? And you know what? A Christian that sins is the most miserable. Now, if you tell me sin doesn't bother you, you haven't found Christ. Holy Spirit's not living within you because that's just resonating there. But if you keep doing that and keep doing that, the worst conscience allowable that, that we know of that's described for us in Scripture is a seared conscience. Um, if maybe if you've maybe had a surgery, maybe you've had uh, some type of a cut, some type of an injury, what will come back in a lot of those places is what's called scar tissue, okay? And scar tissue is something that you can really even take a needle and poke it. There's no feeling in there. That's what a seared conscience is. You don't even know what's right and wrong now. Let's take a look at that one. A seared conscience. It's described for us in First Timothy. First Timothy. All of these written by Paul, but nonetheless. Paul knowing both sides of a conscience, shall we say, a non-truth and truth. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And he's talking about the later days. And let's just start in verse 1 of chapter 4, 1 Timothy, writing to the one he's mentoring, the one he wants to to be a pastor wherever he's at. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Right there, friends, that's as bad as it gets from the sense of a conscience. That's a conscience that literally is no, of no value anymore. It can't do anything. It has been, it's nothing more than literally scar tissue. Another way to look at it, let's say this window right here. This window and, the, and God's law, God's word is light. And it can come through the window. Now as that window gets dirtier, less light comes in. And it gets a little dimmer, a little dimmer. And then, if you go through a mud puddle, there's no light came in. That's literally kind of how we how we treat our conscience. That conscience is the pain of which comes not pain p a i n, but the window pain as God's light is coming through. The decisions we make. Now, I'm guilty of this. You know, if you're a truck driver or any driver for that much, you know what you should do every time before you get in the before you get in the vehicle, get your window washer out and clean those windows. You know what you need to do every single morning. Believer in Christ. Wash your windows. Put on the whole armor of God. And this, is, this, and this verse is for us, First John chapter one, verse nine. It's a confession. It's a sense of regaining fellowship. Because you know what happens when that window pane is dirty? Fellowship stops. I want to start off the morning, I say, "God, forgive me for the sins that I've committed." And it's amazing how they'll point those out. Doesn't it? It's like, I got that one. Yes, I do. And the, Yeah, and that one. And you know what? And if we come clean, we repent, we turn the other way, fellowship is rejoined, and guess what? The window's clean. The bright light's there. Our conscience now is fully engaged because the Holy Spirit is allowing the Word of God to speak to us to our innermost parts. If sin does not bother you, you get saved. That's all I can say. And if you're... A Christian and the sin is bothering you, reach out to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Confess those sins. because Satan wants you to be, he wants you to be uh, isolated. He wants your windows dirty. He doesn't want you anywhere near God. He uses sin to we had a list on here. I elaborate, I can't even go there, but it was from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If someone would ask, well, how do I know I'm a Christian? There was 10 things actually in chapter 1. You're, gonna, you're, you're actually, your faith is gonna work. You're gonna have a love that labors. You're gonna have a hope that endures. Those are the main three. If those things aren't present, you need to find Jesus. It's just a game, it's a, it's a facade. The conscience, the conscience. Any questions? This is one you could go a long ways. But let's look on the other side. So far we've seen consciences that are, are certainly defiled. They are evil, they are defiled, I'm sorry, defiled, evil, sco- seared. Let's take a look, where are you at in right now? First Timothy, uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. And now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience. You'll find that also over in verse 19, same chapter. Holding faith and a good conscience. Uh, a couple other verses you might write down, we're going to keep moving on here. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 18. And let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, you find in Peter's epistles, oh, there's a lot of good stuff there. First Peter chapter three, and let's take a look at chapter chapter three and verse sixteen says this. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. A good conscience, one that Christ literally has controlling. A conscience. How do you get a messed up conscience? How did Paul get where he was doing? What Zealous, right? How many people are really, I mean, they're gung-ho. They're zealous. There's, there's people that are so on fire for religion. I mean, it's amazing. I love it. I love the zealousness. But let's take a look. I think we can, we can find that in Scripture. Let's go to John chapter 16. Jesus is telling a story. You know, Jesus is unfolding truth. And he's saying this, he's talking to the, to the disciples concerning the world and the persecution, the tribulation that will come from the world in regards to them because they hate the Father. They hate Christ. And chapter 16 of John, verse 1, let's start this way. These things, in other words, this, this persecution that will come. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. In other words, you should be ready. Be ready. They, now watch, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you, watch, will think that he doeth God's service. Who is that speaking of? Paul. <laughs> he thought he was gung-ho, go get him. I mean, six days a week. The only day he took off was to go to the Sabbath to be able to be in the, te- the, into the, you know, the temple to worship God and the other six days killing Christians who are trusting Jesus, who they right? You get it? That they think they were right? Totally, totally conscientious. Totally 100% authentic. Totally sincere, but totally wrong. Without truth, the conscience is broken. It's broken. Now watch, it even goes on further, verse 3. And these things will they do unto you because, watch now, they have not known the Father or me. They can talk about it. There are people that are super religious that don't know Jesus Christ. That's the scariest place to be. It's the hardest place to get through because you've got a facade. You've got got something you've got to break through. Some ritual, some religion, something that's holding you from literally seeing. And that's how Satan blinds minds. Are you ready? Satan blinds minds through religion. The religious walls have to come down. Some of the easiest people to see Christ is the ones that have no background in religion. That's the ones. The relig- in fact, who's the hardest people to reach in all the Bible? The Israel. The Isra- Israel's religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, five times they've been addressed now by, I'm talking, powerful preaching. It would be like having revival services with the best, and they went to them. Now, in this case, the Roman, the, the Roman uh, uh, Kiliarch actually brought them to this Paul, but he... Now, let's go back to the story. Paul has just started, one sentence out of his mouth, and pop to the mouth. Now, Paul's taken some abuse. The day before, they tried to kill him. And literally, the the verbiage that's used is the Roman soldiers lifted him above their heads so that they could get him out of harm's way. And here we are standing in before the Sanhedrin, and somebody out of the blue cold cocks him. And there's a little bit of human coming out in Mr. Paul right now. (laughs) Now, it says, let's go back to Acts. Let's keep moving. That verse took us a long time, didn't it? Let's go to, uh, i got to find it. Acts chapter 23. The high priest commanded them to stood by him, to smite him, to hit him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him. I mean, uh, now this is, the, well, I'll say it. God smite you, you whitewalled. You're sitting to judge me after the law and commanding me to be smitten, contrary to the law? What he's just done, that person has commanded something that is illegal. Paul has not even, been, not even been accused of anything, let alone convicted. Now, to do that is totally against the law of, of Israel. To hit someone, to strike a fellow Israelite without any reason is totally against the law. So the high priest is totally stepped beyond his bounds. So Paul is reacting, and then someone right beside him says this. After he said, now, what did he say? Let's, we got to say what he says. I mean, so you call somebody a white wall. I can think of worse things. Probably not. Uh, without, no, I think it's in Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm not going to go back there, but it's a, it's a, fig, it's, it's, it's something that's a picture that Ezekiel is talking about. Have you ever seen a wall and all of the mortar is just pretty much gone? I've got some buildings over it at, at a ranch that I lease and there is nothing left of the building so what do we do we paint it (laughs) so it looks good that's exactly what Paul is saying he says you are nothing but a phony you have literally broken the law and now you are the one that's going to address the law you are nothing more than a white walled nothing because that was what God said in Ezekiel if that guy after you got done painting it if you leaned against it it would fall over there's actually literally a building over there in Harrison, Montana. I know if I pushed on that building, it's freshly painted a couple years ago, it would fall over. <laughs> that's, and that's why it's so vivid to me. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You're just a complete phony. Complete phony. Now, someone next to him says this. Verse 4. They that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? And Paul seems rattled by that. Now, Am I supposed to suppose that Paul doesn't know who the high priest is? What kind of a meeting is this? It's informal. The high priest wouldn't have been sitting where he'd normally been sitting. And Paul would have known those chambers. Just by the sense of the seating, that high priest would have been identified. Paul is across the room. This is just an informal gathering. And did he know that high priest... Uh, personally, probably not. The one that he would have known, the one that he would have appeared before the Sanhedrin and got the letter, remember those letters? He was on the way to Damascus to go kill Christians? They at the Sanhedrin gave him a list. He would have known that high priest. This one here hadn't been there long enough. You talk about a, 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 this guy is amazing. He served from this point all the way to 66 AD. He was a completely corrupt man. He would actually steal tithes that were supposed to be for priests for their livelihood and then kill them if they rejected, if they, if, if they wanted any sense of a rejection to that. He became very pro-Roman. In other words, he took Roman stance which made the fellow Israelites hate him. In fact, that's literally how he was killed. In 66 AD, there was a revolt and he, was, he and his brother were found in an aqua, aqueduct and his fellow Israelis, his, his, his Jews, killed him. That's the kind of man we got right here. In fact, what Paul just said actually probably came to be. Now, I don't think Paul knew who the high priest was. And, and again, if you heard this, sh- this shouting from across the room, would he know his voice? Unlikely. I don't know what you would do when you get popped to the chops after saying one word and you're on defense. Ah, there might be a little human come out of me. What are you doing? Right? And he just let it rip. So someone said, that's the high priest. Now, Paul did come back, and there's a sense of, there's no apology. No apology to the man, because he has violated the law, but there is a respect for the office. He actually quotes scripture. Let's keep going. Then said Paul, verse 5, I wish not. I didn't know, brethren, that he was a high priest. I believe that's exactly true. For it is written, this is an Exodus chapter, he knows this Bible, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Did you see an apology there? No. What, he, what you do see is that position, that high priest was very revered and very respected. And Paul is saying, I respect that office. That's it. Now what are you going to do? This is not, this is going south. This is really going south. This is fast. He has said, I'm your peers. I've appeared in complete clear conscience before God in everything I've done up until this very day. So you literally are on trial because I've done what God has asked me to do. And High priest says, hit him now. And Paul blurts out, where do you think this is going to go from this point? He's just told the high priest that he's a complete whack phony. This is going to go good. It would be like the supreme, or this would be like, like, like the judge that you're standing before, and though you're innocent, you say, you are nothing but a complete loser. I think you just as well go back to jail. That's what I'm thinking, right? So what is Paul going to do? Is he innocent? Yes, absolutely. What is God going to have him say next? Brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So he gathers in composure. I don't think it took him long because it seems like immediately, hey, did not know he was a high priest. Did not know. In fact, the scripture says, isn't that cool? Pulls it right out. I'm to respect the office of the ruler of the people. Now watch what takes place next. When Paul perceived well, he knew this, that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. We need to stop here for a moment. The Sanhedrin was made up of literally two groups of people. Pharisees, now let's talk about them. What do you know about a Pharisee? What, are they, what do they believe in? What do they do? How, what, what, how would you describe a Pharisee? Very legal, ultra-legalists. I mean, if there was some way to do it a little more perfectly so that someone else couldn't do it and you could and you look better, that's a Pharisee. Okay, What else? Very fundamental. I mean, it was, it was cut and dried. Everything was very literal. Now, they believed in miracles. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the afterlife. They took the Scripture very, very literal. Okay, that was a plus for them. But what happened is they majored on minors, and they minored on majors. They missed the whole heart condition. They missed why Jesus Christ had to come. They missed the suffering part of the Savior. So, Jesus obviously could not be their Messiah. Anything else about a Pharisee? Anything? Okay, that's one side of it, if you will. Those Pharisees. Who is the other side? That's the Sadducees. What do you know about them? I want to tell you this as well. Uh, If you were going to take these 71, the majority would always fall to the Pharisees. They had the votes, but they didn't have the power because the high priestly families were all Sadducees. So you can you see this tension. You talk about Democrats and Republicans fighting in Congress and the Senate, and you got about, this, if you, oh, my goodness, right? This is just like that. The only time they were together was when they needed to kill Jesus. The rest of the time, they're fighting, and Paul knows this. He may have even served here. He said, he opens up, and he says, he's, he's, he's seeing the same divide, In fact, we probably even sit separately for all we know, right? I don't know. And he says, Let me tell you a few things. I'm a Pharisee. Whoa! Immediately you have a division in the room. The Pharisees are saying, I knew he was a good guy. I just had a feeling about this guy. The Sadducees, Oh, for heaven's sakes, what are we waiting for? Get this guy out of here. Sadducees were the liberals. They were uh, what we would call today as a liberal. They did not believe in the afterlife, they did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in almost anything. They were way, way just their world. They would be called probably even today a secular humanist, if you will. They hid behind the, the force of religion. And think of that. Now, a high priest that did not believe in afterlife did not believe in the resurrection. Where did you miss that? There was a little too much other stuff that they wanted to have in their lives. They were rationalists. And you've all you heard the old... Uh, the old, I mean, I've used it so many times it's almost too old, but the Sadducees, they did not believe in the, re- in the resurrection, and that's why they were so sad, you see. Their lives were just just so tiny. It was just amazing. But that was the high priest family. So Paul says this, even though the Sadducees were a minority, which is probably why he said what he said. He said, men and brethren, he starts out the same way, I am a Pharisee, let's try this all over again, my my first approach wasn't working, so let's go with this one, I am a Pharisee, let's divide and conquer, the son of a Pharisee, of all things, and watch this, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question, that's why I'm here right now, that's why I'm standing before you, is because of resurrection, it would have been just literally like taking a vote right then, Pharisees against Sadducees, Sadducees are completely out, they don't believe in any resurrection, the Pharisees, wait a minute. This guy's a Pharisee. His dad was a Pharisee. Resurrection, that's a good thing. I think, in fact, watch what they do. They're taking his side. When he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. There arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees, Part arose and strove saying, These are the Pharisees talking for Paul. Now, he's not even saying anything anymore. It's the shortest speech I've ever heard of. We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit. Now, this is interesting. We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Now, see, some of those must have been there the day before when he was standing on the steps saying this Jesus of Nazareth appeared to me. Did you see what they didn't call him? Jesus of Nazareth. You know, if an angel or a spirit talks to him, who are we to say the Lord? See, They've already foregone the conclusion that they're not going to accept anything about Jesus, but the resurrection was enough for them to stand on Paul's side. Amazing. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in peace, it sounds like yesterday, deja vu commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the castle. In other words, this assembly where they were just meeting informally to try to find out what's at the bottom of it. Guess what? You know what what Claudius Lysias knows at this point now? Not one thing more than he knew the day before. He just knows they really don't like him much. And now he knows there's two factions within the Sanhedrin and who knows what that's about. So he sends his men down and they (laughs) rescue Paul again. Think of that. The Romans, the Gentiles, are literally rescuing Paul from the his family from his Jewish heritage. Okay, now, I want you to again slip into Paul's shoes. How's it going? (laughs) Oh my goodness, what in the world? In fact, that night might have been a low point because it's amazing how God knows when to show up when you're at your lowest. I've shared some of those moments with you in my, my life. You have your own. There's those moments where there's nothing left to fall apart. You think, I don't even know if there is a God right now. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what's going on. What has Paul done wrong? What, just, to, just for a moment, just for a moment, just, let's, just for a second. Paul has come to town, to Jerusalem. He's been on three missionary trips. I mean, he's given his guts for God. I mean, it's amazing what this man has done. He's delivered gifts to the, Jewish church, to the Jerusalem church. That's good. Unity everywhere. The elders of the, of the Christian church in Jerusalem say, you know what, guy, I, I, we've got to get some more, we got to get this thing together. There's, there's people saying things about you. But if you pay for the vows of these four guys and you kind of do your own little vow, I tell you what, I think it'd be good. Okay, no problem. The last day or really toward the end of that, somebody from Ephesus sees him and runs him in. They, about, they try to beat him to death. The Roman garrison's going to beat him, to, or scourge him to death. And now he's before the Sanhedrin and they're trying to kill each other within the chambers. And he's like... What is going on? That's a good time for God to appear, isn't it? Where's he at? Where is God at? Where is Jesus at? And that's a moment right now. And this, we only have, we have literally one verse of which Jesus Christ appears to Paul and gives him all of the things that he needs. Verse 11. The night following, that night, the Lord stood by him and said, these are, if you have a red letter edition, these are, this is literally Jesus Christ that has appeared to him. And he says this, be of good cheer, Paul. Oh, oh, oh well, that's, that's a touchdown, right? <laughs> I don't feel so cheery. I've been texting to, you know, various people through the week that, you know, they need some encouragement. They need something. And, it's, and when you just take through the text and you read it, it I'm telling you, it's so easy to be led or guide by, guided by your feelings, right? Dangerous, dangerous spot. Uh, that's a roller coaster ride. Emotions, it'll, just, it'll, wipe, it'll wipe your life out. In fact, I've got, I've got one person I need to respond to. I mean, God is working on me, but you guys were first. Got to get that sermon ready, right? But tonight sometime, I've got I've to go back to that person. I've got to say... Let's part the curtains for a moment. Leave your, leave your feelings behind. Let's, let's dig in. And what would you literally advise someone that came to you with these questions? What would you say? Get yourself out of the forest, out of the trees. Because it's amazing how our self can dictate how bad we really have it. Isn't it true? Now, it's amazing Paul isn't doing that, but God must have known his emotional state. Because here he comes and he says, right now I'm going to give you comfort. You are Okay. You are right now in a great spot. Okay. <laughs> but look at this. There's also a commendation. There is comfort for right now. In fact, that reminds me, when I think of that, write this down in your notes, but if you want a, you want a, a guy that's really feeling a little bit woozy about what's taking place, how about if you've been following Moses around for most of your life, and all of a sudden, he's gone. He's dead. And you're the next guy. That guy's name is Joshua. Write down Joshua chapter 1, verses 1-9. through 9. You read that passage, and God appears to him, in, 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 again, in a, in a way that says, I want you to be strong and of a very good courage. He says it like five times. I wonder what he's saying. Be strong and of a very good courage. He needed that. You know what? We need that today. Stay the course. Stay on track. Stay focused. That's what Paul needed. But look at this. I have to appreciate what This was like the attaboy good job, Paul. He says this, "Uh, be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem. Stop. That's a commendation. Way to go, buddy. I mean, look at all the people you've touched right now. The Sanhedrin, they really rejected you once again. Just, but it's early. Did you notice that something? It's that callousness. Do you see what's happening to their conscience? It's already defiled it's about to be seared because they no longer accept truth. Now, that's a dangerous spot when you won't even accept truth. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe unto them that say good is evil, and evil is good. That's where our nation is right now in the leadership, okay? Dangerous place to be, because they can't even receive truth. When you cannot receive truth, you are right now on the edge of a seared conscience, one that can't even anticipate what's right. Now, I'm not saying they're outside of So I'm not going to say that, because God can break through anything. God is sovereign, but that's a dangerous place to be, when you resist what you know to be true, and that's what these men serving in the Sanhedrin really are, that high priest particularly. By the way, Paul, good job, way to go. And then, there's confidence for the future. I mean, it's just like three quick, and he's gone, it, it's amazing. So must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now that's like, whoa, no matter, I'm good. To Rome I go. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know what i got to go through, but it doesn't matter. God just said, I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm going to testify before those guys as well. You know what? You couldn't have beaten Paul to any level at that point, just those three things. Be of good cheer, Paul. I'm here. I'm right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. See, that's the thing that Satan doesn't want anyone to know. I texted a verse to this, uh, this one that I, that I need to get further with, but... Let's turn to it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It's so simple and yet it's so strong. This is literally a, an okay, shall we say, from what Paul needed to hear. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You can take that to the bank. Isn't that good to know? He's never going to go anywhere. Be of good cheer, Paul. I'm right here. right with you, comforting you right now. Right now, right here, right now. And by the way, good job. You let the Holy Spirit work, and we pass on the gospel to these in Jerusalem. I mean, what opportunity. Look at that, Paul. Look at the thousand that you spoke to. But it's even going to get better. Just like he wanted to go to Rome. It talks about in Romans chapter 15, verse 23. He says, on my way to Spain, this is the aggressiveness of Paul, I'm going to stop in Rome. And you know what? He got there. He got there. What a sense of encouragement. Does Jesus care? You better believe he does. In fact, I'm going to read that. Let's see if I can find my phone. This is one of those uh, hymns that I love. Does Jesus Care? By Frank Grafe, I guess it is, 1901. Listen carefully. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades? Does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong when for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart breaks, I'm sorry, and my sad heart aches until it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him? Does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. That song has spoken to me in those dark moments, those moments of which I even was asking, does Jesus care? The encouragement that Paul received from that is something he spoke of. To the Corinthian church, t- t- take your Bibles and turn with me. Mark these. These are ones that I've shared with other people, particularly at times of grieving. The sense of comfort that God literally gives to us. Second Corinthians chapter 1, let's look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them, which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of God abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. The more the sufferings, the more trouble, the more Christ abounds. Whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer, whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And then over to chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 4. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comforts. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. How can that be? For when we were in, in, come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Fighting on the outside, within were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Isn't that refreshing? And I'm going to say, I have never even touched a moment of the depths of Paul's suffering or tribulation. I have no idea what that's like. And yet, that man was comforted at every level he needed, every step of the way. Is God reaching out to you today? He absolutely is. He's not leaving you, he's not going anywhere. If you've trusted him as savior, he has went. He is right there caring for you. He is comforting you at a level that you don't even really understand. There's times when you may be so weary, so distressed, it tells us in Romans chapter eight that the Holy Spirit is praying for you. Isn't that refreshing? Even when I don't have the strength to pray, the Holy Spirit is literally reaching out and praying for us. That's where Paul was. Isn't this Paul fun, guy to watch and study? Wow! Isn't he like uh, saying, "God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable"? <laughs> there's some truth to that, buddy. Always, <laughs> there's some truth to that. Yeah, and that's another. Actually, actually, if you're comfortable, praise God, but get ready for something, right? <laughs> that's kind of how it works. But the really good thing is, is no matter the affliction. God is trying that word there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 or 4 there where it sucks. The afflictions are greater. God abounds beyond that. That's what we can count on. Let's pray for one another through this week as well. There's many that aren't here today for various reasons, and yet, you know what? Our God knows exactly the situation. Lift each other up in prayer thanking him, rejoicing, that's, that's another key component. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to get in starting a whole other series, but the sense of the fact is sometimes we reach out and we, we pray for peace, but you must start the peace that comes to you by rejoicing in what God has done for us. That's where we usually start this roll, this, this ball rolling down the wrong side of the hill is when we expect more, when we're not thankful for what we have. And the place to start is thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Any questions or comments? I think that's as far as we'll go today. Oh, I got one verse to close with. Thinking about care. That, that hymn that I read the words to, isn't that, isn't that just it's so, it's so strong, isn't it? Uh, Frank took that out of a scripture verse. It was the one that really led him to the sense of giving those words. And I know the Holy Spirit would have used it as well. Which verse is that? Let's find it. First Peter. First Peter. let's go there. First Peter. First Peter, coming from Peter, the one that denied Christ three times. First Peter, chapter five. And this is how he's closing out his section, if you will. The last chapter, First Peter, he says in verse six, "humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God." that he may exalt you in due time. And here's the verse that Frank would have used to write, does Jesus care? Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. How many people have been comforted by that verse is amazing. With that, let's just close in prayer. Father God, thank you that you do care. Thank you that you cared enough to literally, before the world began, you chose us in Christ, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And when someone has accepted Christ, Father, there are benefits, there are things that we can't even possibly know, the blessings that are on our side. That doesn't mean it doesn't come with trouble, trials, afflictions, tribulations, of course not, because the world hates us because we're Christ. Satan hates us because we are purchased by the blood of Christ, but there's nothing he can do to own us. He can try to silence us, he can try to steal our testimony, and he does that through the power of sin, but Father Jesus Christ broke the power of sin. He broke it, and if we will choose to yield to him, it is broken on our lives as well. Help us this week, Father, to pray for those that come to our mind, those that we need to stand by, to lift up, that you would bring comfort to, that you would bring a sense of security to them. And, Father, encourage us. Thank you for allowing us to see confidence in the future. Thank you for being with us right now. The comfort that literally is today with us. The peace that passes all understanding. Help us to rejoice and not to be anxious about anything, but to cultivate kindness and gentleness toward those around us. May Jesus be lifted up. May you be honored, Father. May we be blessed.